Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2. And as we continue in our study, we have looked in 1, 1 through 2, 3, all that God had done in terms of creation. He created the seventh day as a day of rest. Upon the completion of His creation, God declared that it was all very good. And we began a transition, if you will, in 2-4. It introduced us to a significant transition in Moses now telling us about the generations of the earth. He has told us how God has created the heavens and the earth, and now he is going to tell us about the generations of the earth. And so where we are in this section is a revisit of day six of creation, just before God creates mankind. In telling the story of the generations of the earth, Moses points us towards or forward to the response of mankind to this majestic creation. And it is expressed through the drastic change that is going to occur in God's perfect created world as a result of the fall of man. So there are several indications in the section we looked at last week that this is exactly what Moses is intending to do. First of all, he introduces us to a new name for God. He has told us about Elohim all through chapter 1, and now it's a different name. It's Yahweh Elohim, and this is the name for the covenant redeemer God, and it's an indication that Moses is pointing us towards man's need for redemption as a result of the fall. This is the only name used for God until the end of chapter 4 with the exception of of the serpent's interaction with Eve and him tempting her into disobedience. Every other usage of the name title for God through the end of chapter 4 is Yahweh Elohim. The second indication we have is that Moses is describing what is now a part of the world that was not a part of the original world that God had created. He uses this by saying there were no shrubs of the field, no plants of the field, there was no rain, there was no man to cultivate. And so Moses uses these negatives or these no's to present a contrast to what was not part of God's perfect creation and what now is as a result of the fall. So in God's perfect world, the earth was lush with grasses and trees and plants that were good for food. And as a result of the fall, there are now shrubs of the field, plants of the field, the thorns and thistles that would be described for us in chapter 3 that would make man's need to feed himself incredibly difficult where he would have to work the ground in order to harvest food that would feed him. Moses also references the mist or these subterranean waters that were used by God to water the entirety of the earth and not just the garden. And so in our day and age, as a result of the fall, rain is very unpredictable, too much, and you get flooding, too little, and you get drought. And so Moses describes why there is now a need to cultivate the ground, to grow food, because of the lack of rain, because of the presence of thorns and thistles, and the need to grow food. So prior to the fall, there was no effort required for Adam and Eve to feed themselves. It was simple as walking out your back door and plucking something out of your garden. This would all radically change as a result of the fall. Now God has formed Adam as the culmination to day six of creation. It tells us here that from the dust of the earth... 
God scooped up this dust that He breathed life into Him and made Him into a living being. God took the dust of the earth and fashioned into it a non-living human being, breathed life into His nostrils and made Him a living being. This is a picture of incredible intimacy and it lends itself into seeing how we are created in the image of God that God Himself formed us breathed life into us from His very nostrils and made us into a living being. So this divinely created being is unique from the rest of all of creation and enjoys the capacity for a personal relationship with the Creator. Now in our passage today, verses 8-17, through we're going to look at man being placed in the garden or man's life in the garden. So beginning in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Peshon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now there's a lot to unpack here, and we can't possibly unpack all that is in here. I will say this, there is the introduction of many different themes or recurring ideas that are introduced here that are then taken upon in greater detail later on, and so some of these we will deal with when we come to them later in our study of Genesis. So we're going to look now at man's life in the garden. So the earth is unique to all the planets in our solar system, and modern day science would able to look with some form of precision into what life would look like on those planets. And as far as we can tell, life is impossible on any of these planets. And this is also true as far as we've been able to study in the vast universe that God has created. The earth is uniquely created by God for man and his created world to live in, but it wasn't enough for God to create this beautiful, perfect world for us to live in And for Adam to live in, after breathing life into Adam, this passage tells us several important things. The first of which is God placed the man where he is going to be. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So God placed the man in the garden, creating this lush world for Adam and Eve to enjoy, filled with trees and plants that are good for food, lush grasses, an abundance of everything man could ever want. And yet God still saw fit to plant a garden and then put man in that garden for him to live in. It's an incredible reality 
that the Creator-Redeemer plants a specific place for Adam to live in, even though all of the world that God had made was perfect and lush and provided for Adam everything that he could ever want and hope for. So God planted this garden after he had finished his work of creation and before he creates the man. So he creates man. Excuse me, I've said that wrong. He creates man. He then plants this garden and he places man in the garden for him to live. Now the garden based upon the Hebrew word, communicates to us that this is an enclosed and a protected area. The garden appears to be a haven, a divinely created place by God, intentionally made for man to live in. And so after creating the vast universe and a world designed for mankind, God makes this special place for Adam and Eve to live in, this protected and closed enclave, if you will. This garden is in Eden, indicating that Eden is a geographical area or region. God did not live in the garden, but God would visit the garden and fellowship with man, as we learn in chapter 3. So the garden that God places man in is protected and enclosed, Since man has the capacity for a personal relationship with God, God places him there and then visits with him on a daily basis to enjoy this personal interaction. So in this meeting place that God places man in, it becomes like a tabernacle since this is where God is going to meet with Adam. This is to be understood as a model for the temple that would eventually be built or the tabernacle that Moses would build. And this is going to be an enclosed area where it is understood that God lives and where God meets with the high priest and then communicates with him. And therefore the high priest goes out and then communicates to the nation of Israel what God has said. This becomes the eventual design and the understanding of the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple where Israel would eventually worship and where God would meet with man. So the intent of this garden, this protected enclosed area where God places Adam, it highlights the importance of the uniqueness for which God has created man and the capacity for a personal relationship. And God's desire to actually meet with man and Adam in this protected and close place where he specifically places Adam after he is created. Now there's a bit of an interruption into the flow of thought here as we look at the following verses in a description of what the garden is actually like. So number two in the outline, the garden is lush. The blessing is seen in the lush and fertile provision of the garden itself. Not only does Adam have a perfect world to live in, but he has this protected and enclosed area that is perfection personified where God is going to meet with him, and it is a rich blessing for Adam to enjoy. Now it says here in the beginning part of verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God cause to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So the blessing is found in the fact that there is plentiful food. Adam would not have to venture out of the garden in order to feed himself. He would have all that he would need in this protected environment that God has placed for him. 
The created world sprouted with plants and trees that were good for food, but God made the garden to be overflowing with this rich blessing that Adam is going to now work and keep, as we'll see here in just a moment. Every tree that is both pleasing to the sight and good for food is growing here in the garden. Now, verse 9 also goes on to say, the tree of life also in the middle, is, excuse me, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we're going to set those aside and go back to revisit these two verses or the remainder of this verse 9 as we look at how this relates to what is said a little bit later on in our passage. So these next verses are a pause in the narrative about God, a pause in the narrative about God placing man in the garden, but they provide further description of the beauty of the garden and the rich blessing that is the result of what God has made here. So it's not only not only does it contain plentiful amounts of food, but it also contains heavenly water. Verse 10 says, Now a river flowed out of Eden to water to, to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. Now you will note here that there is an unnamed singular river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and that river becomes a headwater to the division of four other rivers that are going to flow to the four corners of the earth. Now, this river represents the distribution of heavenly life to the world that God has made. It abundantly, excuse me, its abundant supply flows from Eden through the temple garden, and then branches out to the four corners of the earth. It is supposed that perhaps the garden in Eden is up on a mountain, and on that mountain is this headwater, and out of that headwater flows the four rivers that would go to the four corners of the earth. That's speculation. It really doesn't say specifically that this is so. We can't say with any precision where Eden actually is. It's possible that it is on a mountain. It's possible that it's just on some kind of a hill. That really isn't known. But it, this flowing water provides food and healing and is symbolic of the springs of living water that are mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. An example of that is found in Psalm 46.4. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. So this heavenly water that is symbolic with God's provision, God's healing, God's divine presence, it is a source of heavenly water to the world. This heavenly water is also significant in Jesus' self proclaimed source of living water in his, in, in his conversation with the woman at the well. This didn't make it into the slides, but it says in John 4.14, as Jesus is encountering this woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So it is supplied based upon the rest of what Scripture says about water in general, that perhaps this headwater is a source of heavenly water and is symbolic of the healing and the spiritual life that comes from God to the four corners of the earth. So this singular centralized river is said to then branch out into these four rivers. This is what is contained for us in verses 11 through 14. 
Now, I will admit to you that this is very, very challenging to flesh out. Let me read it, and then we'll go through it a little bit. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Bedellium and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river, its third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, the naming of the four rivers is somewhat problematic. The Tigris and the Euphrates are well-known rivers that are actually in existence today. You can go on a map and you can say there's the Tigris and there's the the Euphrates. The problem is the Pishon and the Gihon are totally unknown. When you go to look at the area of the Tigris and the Euphrates and you trace them to their beginning and to their end, you cannot find any such named rivers. Adding to the challenge is that Havilah is thought to be in Arabia, but there is no river there named Pashon or Gihon. The reality is that the precise location of Eden is lost. It is not known. You can't go to a map and say that's where it is. All we can say is there's a general region where it could be there. But the reality is two of these four rivers are not known to us today. Now that doesn't make the text wrong or inaccurate. It just means that those rivers cannot be located today. The reality is that many rivers over long periods of time will change their course. Some of these rivers will dry up and cease to be. It's also unknown how much of an impact the flood had on these two rivers specifically and how their course may have changed or how they may have disappeared altogether. So these four rivers here and the likely geographic places they would be are challenging because we can't go to a map and find them today. But we do have a sense of the general region of Eden, even though we can't go to a map and say that's where it is. So the other part that is told to us about the Garden of Eden is that it is also rich in minerals. Verse 11 says, uh, excuse me, verse 11 mentions the land of Havilah, which is rich in gold, emdallium, and the onyx stone. And so it is, to, it is to be understood that the gold and the stones mentioned here likely have their origin in Eden, and they flow, flow from that river and then are deposited in this region of Havilah as well as the other parts. Parts of the world. Now, while it is our tendency to get bogged down in the details of 11 through 15, that really isn't the point of why these rivers are specifically mentioned. What is clear is the habitat that God has prepared is bountiful and it is beautiful. That is the purpose that Moses wants the reader to take away from this is that this enclosed protected area, this garden in the region of Eden that God placed man in was a tremendous blessing for him with plentiful food, a headwater that flowed to the four corners of the world, rich in minerals. It is indescribably rich and and it is exceedingly good. This is the place that God put man in. This was the place 
that God intended for mankind to live in. And as Moses is pointing forward to the reality of the fall, this kind of place becomes the ideal for the nation of Israel. Now the Jordan River becomes the symbol of God's good provision for a land flowing with milk and honey. The gold, onyx, and other stones are incorporated into the temple in the garments the priest would wear. The Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, along with the Nile, are future boundaries descriptive of the land that God promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. So it is very likely that what Moses is doing is he is pointing the reader forward from creation into the re- into the reality of existence for the Israelites, this newly formed nation that has just left the country of Egypt through the exodus. They're now likely in this wilderness wandering and they are looking forward to the promised land. Moses is describing the land that God intended for mankind to live in, and that is the promise and the hope of the land that God swore to their forefather Abraham, and this is what they have their sights set on. God has prepared and assigned Eden to Adam's care. The paradise of Canaan's land was was entrusted to Abraham and his future descendants. And so the connection is likely why Moses included these elements here in this narrative, most especially if, in fact, as many assume, Moses was writing this during the wilderness wandering. So as there is this contrast to the world that God made prior to the fall, Moses is also pointing to the real experience of the Israelite and the longing they have for the land that God had promised to them. It is in an imperfect way a reclamation of the paradise lost through the fall, the promise of God to the nation of Israel and the land that God had sworn to Abraham. In a similar way, you and I aren't looking forward to an actual physical land. What is it that we're looking to? We're looking forward to the restoration of the Eden experience when everything was perfect, where God is in the future going to make everything new and restore what was lost. This is what we long for. This is what the nation of Israel is longing for. Think about this. They know something about the perfection of the land that God had made. They very well knew what they experienced through horrific enslavement to the nation of Egypt, through these very difficult years of wandering through the wilderness, and the longing for the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, that God their creator, redeemer, has promised to them through their father Abraham. What God prepared for and provided to Adam, he was also preparing for and providing to the newly formed nation of Israel, but to a much lesser lesser degree of perfection. Now the third thing that we see here is described in this placement of man in the garden is man's responsibility. Now this section picks up on the interruption that came after verse 8 where Moses described the beauty of the garden. And here is a continuation of that thought. 
beginning in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So this was Adam's job. It is to cultivate the lush, perfect garden. Now this word cultivate here should be understood differently than the cultivation that was going to be necessary after the fall. And the reason that we can see some difference here is the addition of the instruction that he is going to cultivate it and he is going to keep it. So the word cultivate in conjunction with the word keep is to be understood that Adam is to serve the garden. He is to keep and care for the garden. This is going to be his actual job. Very, very different from cultivating the ground in the post-fall environment. You think about going out into a portion of your yard that has never had a garden before and you've got to dig up everything that is there. You've got to go deep down into the soil. You've got to add soil that is good for growing. You've got to feed it. You've got to nourish it. Then you have to tend it. This is not what Adam would have to do in the Garden of Eden. He simply cared for and kept it. The idea here is that God placed Adam in the garden to work. Work is not a punishment. It's actually a gift from God. God gives us with the ability to work. It is sin that makes work seem like punishment. Isn't that right? I don't think I've ever had a conversation with any person about their job who could not begin to list out things about their job that they did not like And almost always, the list of the things they didn't like about the job related to the people that either supervised them, or that they had to work with, or that they themselves had to supervise. (laughs) That's the reality of what makes work and the post-fall experience so difficult. The soil is difficult enough to produce the food that we need in order to feed ourselves. But when you get two or three farmers who all have different ideas about how it ought to be tended and what ought to be planted and what ought to be done when, and then you've got the people not doing the work right or you got the supervisors telling you that you're, that you're doing it wrong, this thing that you might learn to enjoy farming, you actually learn to hate because of all the other stuff. That's kind of the idea here. Work is a gift from God. It is not a punishment. But here, the contrast in Adam's work after the fall is what is in mind. Adam's work to care and keep the garden before the fall was a very, very easy thing to do. But Adam's work after the fall is going to be incredibly hard because of the cultivation required, because of the necessity of the precise amount of rain, as well as the other things, not the least of which would be insects and other factors that would make feeding yourself from the ground very, very difficult. Number four in our outline here is God's command. Man's life in the garden. God has placed them there. The garden is lush. Man has this responsibility. And now we find God's command. God's command is always, I began to teach my kids this as early as I thought they could understand it, God's commands are always to provide and to protect. 
always, always God's commands provide and protect. So before God gets to the thou shalt not, God and God identifies the provision. Lord, verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. That doesn't sound very restrictive, does it? It's not. As Adam looked at this lush garden that he had been placed in, intentionally, by the covenant redeemer... God says, from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat, with the exception of one. Now, this is a restatement of what was said in chapter 1, verse 30, where God gave permission to eat freely of the vegetation He created. But here we get the detail that chapter 2's version of creation is really all about. So God lays out before Adam this incredible provision And then he adds this singular prohibition, verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. A single restriction. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you're going to die. Now, If you were to walk into someone's home and they were to say to you, make yourself at home, you can enjoy, play with, touch, do whatever you want to do, with the exception of this one thing, you would probably feel like, wow, this is a very generous thing that this host has enabled me to do. I think about Greg. Greg's got this great workshop. If you love wood and woodworking and tools, God, Greg's got the place to go. So if Greg, if I were to go to Greg's shop and he say, hey, look, you can use anything you want in my shop, but the one thing, that thing is dangerous, and if you play with it, you're going to die. I'm going to go, oh, okay, well, by all means, I'm going to stay away from that thing. I don't want to go near it. I don't even want to touch it. Fast forward to chapter 3. So God makes this incredible provision with this, with this singular restriction. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if in fact Moses is writing this during the wilderness wanderings, they have already been given the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, and they've already heard the thousands of rules and regulations that would be a part of the Mosaic Law And so in contrast to all of that, that one restriction, that sounds like a pretty good bargain, doesn't it? I can eat anything I want. I can, hey, this is great. Just the one thing. So we saw in verse 9, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, both trees are located prominently in the middle of the garden, probably implying that the two stood side by side the center of attention. Dietrich Bonhoeffer observed that symbolically the middle of Adam's world was not himself but life, the tree of life in the middle of the garden, the very presence of God, the tree of knowledge as a prohibition signifies 
that man's limitation as a creature is in the middle of his existence, not on the edge. Let me say that again. This is incredibly profound. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as well as the tree of life, are in the middle of the garden. Symbolically, the middle of Adam's world was not himself, but life, the very presence of God. The tree of knowledge as a prohibition signifies that man's limitation as a creature is in the middle of his existence, not on the edge. The very heart of our challenge and our difficulty in trusting God and obeying God and finding life in God is central to our life, not on the edge, not on the periphery, not a secondary or an inconsequential matter, front and center. The tree of life indicates that the tree produces the source of life in the garden. Ultimately, the tree's power to give life was due to the one who planted it, the one who alone grants or refuses to give of its fruit, the presence of the tree indicates that the garden enjoys life and the eating of the fruit will result in continued life, a gift that only God can grant. It's not inherent in the fruit itself. The life that comes from the fruit comes not from the fruit, but from the one who planted the fruit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil has produced many varied understandings and interpretations. And in reality, we could spend another 30 minutes dissecting this and coming out going, what did you just say? I'm not really sure I followed any of that. (laughs) So we're going to do the Reader's Digest version here. The knowledge of good and evil represents wisdom and discernment. To decide and influence what is good, that which hinders life, And evil, that which hinders life. Remember, God provides and He protects. What He permits is designed to enhance our life. What He prohibits is designed to hinder our lives. So this is what the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents. Wisdom and and, and discernment to decide and influence what is good and what is evil. That which enhances life and that which hinders it. Here's the caveat. Unless we know everything, unless we know everything, we only know relatively. Unless we know comprehensively, we cannot know absolutely. Another way of saying that, if you don't know everything, then all you know is what is your unique experience or what it is you've been exposed to. Unless you know absolutely everything that can be known, you don't know what is absolutely right, and therefore you do not have the the ability to discern what is good and what is evil. Therefore, because God knows everything, and God knows comprehensively everything, He knows absolutely, therefore only God in heaven, who transcends time and space, has the prerogative to know truly what is good and bad for life. Does that make sense? Think about this. Does your five-year-old child or grandchild, do they know what is good? Do they know what is going to advance their life? 
Now, they'll open up the cabinet underneath the sink and they'll put anything that they can find into their mouth. Does your 15-year-old son or daughter, your 15-year-old grandchild, do they know what is good for their life, what is going to advance their life? But mom, all my friends are doing it. But mom, Tommy's mom will let him go and do that. Well, that's bad news for Tommy, isn't it? Because I have to do what I believe is right for you. Well, only God comprehensively, perfectly knows what is good and what is bad for life. It is His prerogative alone. Therefore, the tree represents knowledge and power appropriate to God alone. Think about that. The tree represents knowledge and power appropriate only to God. If we only did what God told us to do, and we never ever did anything that God told us not to do, would our lives potentially be radically different? Why? Because God knows. That knowledge is for Him alone. And so this is a part of the temptation that we'll explore later when the serpent says, God knows that in the day that you eat of that, you're going to be like God. Well, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Being like God, isn't that a good thing? No, that's a prerogative for God and God alone. So human beings, in contrast to the omnipotent, omniscient God, must depend upon a revelation from the only one who truly knows good and evil. That makes sense? We are dependent upon this revelation from the only one who knows. We can't be dependent upon what we think and, God forbid, on what we want because those things are skewed as a result of the fall. Humanity's temptation is to seize the unique prerogative of God to be the only one who knows good and evil and to seize that independently from God. No, I want to decide for myself. No, 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 I don't think that sounds right. I think you're trying to deprive me from something good. Oh, that brings back the teenage years, doesn't it? But Dad, but Dad, I think I know what is better for you than you know what is better for you. And it's not because I'm trying to be mean to you or deprive you. It's because I want to provide and I want to protect. This is exactly what all of God's commands are about. So the tree, front and center in the middle of the garden, confronts humanity with the reality of the Creator's rule in the world He has made and in our lives specifically. Adam and Eve would have a single choice to make. Just one. One choice. Obey God and eat freely from any tree or disobey God and eat from the only prohibited tree and suffer the consequence which is death or separation from God. That's it. One choice. One prohibition. It is often assumed that Adam would have lived forever if he had not sinned, but there is a difference between man's creation in which he receives life by the divine inbreathing given by God and the perpetuation of life gained 
by appropriating the tree of life. Immortality is the trait of God alone, as Paul affirmed in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is blessed is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. John Calvin, in studying this passage, said that Adam's earthly life truly would have been temporal, yet he would have passed into heaven without death and without injury, thereby receiving eternal life. The perpetuation or renewing earthly life was possible through the tree of life, but once sin was committed, the consequence of disobedience meant expulsion from the garden and its tree. Likely what that means is that the diseases and the sicknesses that saturate our world would have been eliminated if we had access to the tree of life. We would not suffer physical death, even though our life on this earth would be temporary in the model of Enoch. Now, there's a lot of speculation about that. What God actually says in Genesis 3 when he expels man and Adam and Eve from the garden is that we need to do that lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. So there's some differences in what that means and what people think that means, but it is widely understood that this perpetuation of life is not immortality, but an improved life where we don't experience the consequences of physical deterioration. So, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good. Think about that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good, but it belongs exclusively to God. Sin is simply disbelief in the assumption of human liberty or freedom to determine morality apart from God. God says, you shall not. Man says, well, I think I will. And from that point forward, man's ability to understand what is good and what is bad is radically altered. So the creature must live by faith in the revelation of the only one who knows what is truly good and advances life and that which is bad and hinders life. We cannot live our lives through a self-sufficient claim of knowledge. We think we know, but we really don't know. We do our best to teach, but we really know imperfectly. Only God knows perfectly. So we are dependent upon His revelation as the only all-knowing, all-powerful God. With all we know that has come as a result of the fall, think about that. All that we know that has come as a result of the fall, the disastrous consequences that we live our lives through It is sad to realize that we still struggle with trusting what God has said with His infinite knowledge of what provides life for us and we stubbornly choose to make decisions dependently from God's revelation. Independently from God's revelation. Isn't that right? With all that God has told us about who He is, with all that God has told us about what it is He desires to provide for us, we still today, even though we know firsthand the disastrous consequences of the fall, say, oh, I think I know better. I think I still want to do. 
Yeah, I know that's not going to be good for me, but it's, I think it's going to be worth it, so I'm going to do it anyway. Isn't that what we do? If it had been me or you in the garden, we would have done the same thing. Let's pray.